Without blue, without the oceans, there is no life outside of the ocean. Why? Because the ocean is what makes the earth a nice place to live. It's what creates all the benefits that we humans enjoy here, breathing, eating food, the climate, it, it transfers heat. Hey everyone, it's Ian Summerhalder, and I'm so fortunate to be on our set in the Microsoft Lounge in California on our show, our podcast, Greg Stone Ocean, designed to take ocean science and build a community and a conversation around it. I am here with one of the greatest celebrated marine scientists of our time, Dr. Greg Stone, a dear brother and a mentor of mine, someone who inspires us all on a daily basis about ocean knowledge, but about the simplicity of sustainability around the oceans and how it all affects us. Thank you for doing this show with me, and thank you for allowing me to interview oh, you. Thank you. <laughs> and I just, I want to just jump in. How did you become Dr. Greg Stone? How did you know that the sea was your future? You know, I grew up in the outskirts of Boston, and right. my family wasn't involved with the ocean at all, but I watched TV. And there were these programs called the Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau. Every, I've heard of that guy. <laughs> and every few months there would be one of these episodes. It was on Sunday nights, and they were like an hour long. And I saw one of those. Man, I was in. And I, right. I would count the days between episodes, waiting for the next one to come out. Because here was this guy with a funny accent, out on a boat, exploring, diving, you know, finding shipwrecks and swimming with dolphins. And it just really, really drew me in. And then there was another TV show called Sea Hunt with Lloyd Bridges. He was a diver with an old double hose regulator, I remember. And every episode, he'd get stuck in a cave or somebody would come up behind him and cut his regulator. And, <laughs> but that also took place underwater. So these two programs kind of just, I would swim in my head at night thinking about the ocean. But I, I never got to the ocean until I was uh, seven or eight or nine years old. My cousin lived just south of Boston. And I remember he, we had two masks and two flippers. We each got a flipper <laughs> and uh, took me out into a tide pool off of Nantasket Beach, just south of Boston. And, you know, to this day, I can remember going underwater the first time and seeing the kelp and the, the world below you. Yeah, and it was something about it was bracing cold of the ocean and the visual stimulation. And I knew the ocean was going to be my thing. I didn't know it was going to be science, but I knew from that point on it was going to be the ocean. Happiness is a very good compass in life. And I sensed happiness and passion in that compass direction, the ocean. Right. And then, you know, I just kept heading in that direction. Right. And eventually became a scientist. But, but it was the following my passion and following my happiness is really what I was doing from the start. Well, 12,000 dives later. Now, yeah. Here we are. <laughs> How I met this man was, and we talked, about, we talked about this in my episode. I met him with Dr. Sylvia Earle. And we were sitting, drinking this like 60-year-old Barbados rum yeah, yeah. at Wyland's house. In the Florida Keys. And yeah. In the Florida Keys before this dive. And I was sitting with these two incredible scientists. And they were discussing exactly how important the ocean is. And Dr. Sylvia Earle looked at me and she says, Ian, without blue, there is no green. And then Greg goes, exactly, and here's why. Without blue, without the oceans, there is no life outside of the ocean. Why? Because the ocean is what makes the earth a nice place to live. It's what creates all the benefits that we humans enjoy here, breathing, eating food, the climate. It, it transfers heat. It's like a big radiator. It keeps the heat at the right temperature. It's really the key to making the Earth a habitable planet. And it's not like it's a habitable planet for us. It's the planet from which we came. We are a direct reflection of the Earth. We have to be here. We have to be here. If we go mm -hmm. up 
just 10 miles, it becomes uninhabitable for us. Mm -hmm. And all the other planets in our solar system are uninhabitable for us. This planet is the only place we can be. Right. We're, we're designed to be here. Right. We're part of the Earth. And the ocean is the key element, the key feature. Everything comes back to the ocean on, right. on the planet. Now, the second thing is we are really in a bad place right now. We are going down the toilet. We're using more than we're giving, putting back, right? We're using way more than we're putting back. The way we're operating, if you look at the Earth as, a, as an operating system, it needs certain inputs and those inputs then provide these benefits to us as people. That system is, is operating way beyond its operating specifications. It's like, it's like an engine that's about to overheat, it's going right. so fast, right? It's gotten very serious, and, yeah. and I started off my life loving the ocean and heading to a, a career that would allow me to be on it or under it for most of it. But I did not start out thinking that I was gonna become a marine conservationist. Right. But when I saw, as a scientist, the conditions and what was happening, some, 30 years ago. You couldn't turn back. I, could, could. I, I couldn't turn back. There's a consequence to knowing something, in my view. That's when I changed over and started to try to find ways for modern society to live in a way that supports the ocean and that the ocean can support us. Right. Four books later, right? Countless documentaries, TED Talks. He lectures in Davos at the World Economic Forum. He's also the architect of preserving these protected marine spaces. I want Dr. Greg to, to walk us through this because it's actually quite incredible. Look at this. I even got you a light pen. Hey, all right. How's it work? I don't know. I think I stole <laughs> it from the party. So explain what you were explaining to me earlier, which is how it all works, right? Well, first thing is, as you said, you know, in the old days, navigators hardly knew where they were to begin with. So they guessed saying you were in the North Atlantic was convenient. It sort of knew you were up here somewhere, South Atlantic down here. And then of course the largest body of water on our planet is the Pacific. Uh, you put the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean together, they're still smaller than the Pacific. Right. But and they all are connected. They're all one fluid interconnected system of salt water moving sideways. It's moving up and down. It's cold. It's hot. And this is one global ocean that is the life support system of the planet. We are messing it up in all kinds of ways from taking too much fish out of it, polluting it with carbon dioxide, causing it to become more acidic. We're heating it up, putting plastic into it. We basically take too much of what we want out of it and we put too much of what we don't want into it. And it's beginning to fail. Right. As, as the life support system, we've, we've pushed it past its limits. And that's us. We're that's solely us. doing it. That's us, solely doing it. We used to say dilution is the solution, that the ocean was so big it didn't matter what you did, it would take care of it. And that was actually largely was true. True in 1920 or 1930. Up until around then, you've got, you've got your dates about right. The industrializations of society began to catch up, and uh, now it's, it's failing, and we need to do something about it. There's a school of thought, which is let's return the ocean to its original condition. Let's create wilderness areas in the ocean everywhere and, and that will solve the problem. Right. And hey, listen, wilderness areas are great. I've had more than my fair share of them in my life, diving in Antarctica, right. throughout the Pacific, creating big reserves. But that is not the answer. The answer is to optimize the ocean as an operating system. And right. What that, what that means is to find the key places in the ocean where it does its special things. Like for example, there's a current that runs around Antarctica, it's called the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. Hardly anybody's ever heard of it, but it's the most important current on the whole planet. It's the major driver of all the other currents on the planet. If you think about it, there's only one place on the planet that the wind blows continuously from west to east with no continent to interrupt it. And that's right around Antarctica. 
So you end up with these gigantic waves, for one thing, that I've been through. <laughs> yeah, Cape Horn and, you're talking about? Yeah, Cape Horn is, is one spot. 56 foot waves, like I've, 11 months I measured a 100 foot wave once when I was down there. And as that- Kelly Slater would love to ride that Kelly one. would probably <laughs> give anything to ride it. Those guys will ride anything. That current, for example, has been heating up since World War II. We actually have temperature records back in World War II because we were out there conducting warfare and we collected data. It's heating up, it's beginning to change a little bit. And we kind of wonder what will happen when that current changes. Is that going to change the rest of the current system on the planet? It probably will. Another really important current is the Gulf Stream, which runs from the Caribbean up like a river in the ocean. It's this, right. It's this narrow, Running up through here, basically. Up to Europe. And that's slowed down by what? 30%. You said 30%. So the Gulf Stream is slowed down by 30%. That's right. And if the Gulf Stream were to stop or slow down anymore, it could massively change the climate in Europe. Uh, England would become like Alaska. Norway here would become like Antarctica. The only reason we have the human civilization of late that we have is because of the Gulf Stream. It made, Gulf Stream. it made modern agricultural you know, explosion happen. Right. So, but we're messing with it through climate change. We're slowing that current down. And the, the Atlantic is the little baby ocean. It's the smallest ocean on the planet. It's a little cul-de-sac. So. <laughs> It's Never heard anyone refer to the Atlantic Ocean as a cul-de-sac. <laughs> but what it means is... I guess when you've <laughs> been diving it for the last Well, you can't go years. anywhere. You get a beer, you hit ice, right? right? But that system is a very delicately balanced system, the Gulf Stream, and it can change quite easily. I'd right. say within the course of a decade, the Gulf Stream could slow down further or it could even stop. There isn't any room for error. In so this. how do we change it? We change it by using the best science we have and applying that science to understanding how the earth, ocean, atmosphere system works and our impact on it and change our behavior so that the system operates. We actually know what to do. We know what to do. Today. We didn't when I was growing up. Right. But we know what to do. And it's political will now to get our emissions under control. Right. There's more pollution coming out of the Mississippi River every day in the form of reactive nitrogen and phosphorus creating massive dead zones. It's, it's equal or exceeds what happened with the BP oil spill. Well, I'm, I'm from there, and I, I know. know that is a fact. Yeah. We started right over there in Africa, yeah. and we migrated everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And that's okay. We're designed to do that. It's okay. That we, as human beings, have this sort of guilt that we have inhabited the entire planet, right? Can you elaborate on that sure. a little bit? One of the hypotheses that I think is, that I'm compelled by is that it was a group down here in Mossel Bay, South Africa, and we lived along the coastline. We found the caves, actually. There's the scientists have dug down and they found evidence back 200,000 years ago. Wow. People just like you and I, modern humans, homo sapiens, were living in caves. And we made our way to the coastline. We originally had evolved in the jungle, but there was a natural climate change back then that forced us to the coast. Started eating seafood, probably started telling time because we saw the tides come in and out, and it was, there was an advantage to understanding things like mm -hmm. king tides, because the, the ocean would go down much further and we'd get more food. But we developed a culture there that went on for over 100,000 years. And then there was an explosion about 70,000 years ago where we just basically moved out of Africa and populated you know, Europe and Asia, made our way to North America through a land bridge across right. Alaska. The Bering Strait and down yeah. through South America. And it was a land bridge because of the ice, right? Because there was an ice age and the sea levels went down so low you could walk across. And then we developed ships and we got to all the Pacific Islands and every island. And then finally, in the last century, we actually inhabited Antarctica. So we're there now. Right. All year, 24 hours a day. My view, <laughs> that's who we are. 
we're we're explorers. We're we're adventurers. We're risk takers as a species. So we're, we've right. we've gotten everywhere, and we've made mistakes along the way. A lot of thinking says that the reason we kept moving is that we probably uh, used up resources in one place and wanted to find a place with uh, with additional resources. And I'm talking hundreds of thousands of years ago. Right. We shouldn't feel guilty about it. it happened. It's just the way it is. And now we're here, and we've got to get about managing what we've created, right. this new earth, ocean, human-coupled system. We shouldn't feel guilty about what we've done, but we should feel very guilty about what we don't do. There is a gene in our body that pushes us to what's on the other side of that mountain range? That's right. What's on the other side of that? That's what's right. below that ocean? What's in that cave? We are explorers. It's also why we're exploring space now. That's right. But don't feel guilty about that but feel guilty about your inaction going forward, now knowing what we know, right? That's exactly right. You co-founded the Ocean Health Index, first global open science system for measuring how sustainably humans are using the ocean in every country and on the high seas. Putting a price tag on any given resource, right? That's one of the things that each country needs to take stock in doing, right? You can put a price on a tree, a tree provides enough oxygen and a specific amount of water every year that it offsets a certain amount of human, so let's call it abuse to the world, but it also gives us the water and air that we need. What countries and policymakers and companies can do to actually start, let's call it mitigating what we've done to build a, a much more sustainable future? It's our oceans and we need to fix them. So how do we do it? scale. Most of the impact on the planet is from business activity. Right? right. If you look at the amount of spending in the world, I think businesses are up around $200 trillion a year and government spending is only down around, I think, around $20 trillion a year. So if you follow the money, it's businesses. If you change the behavior of businesses, you change the footprint or the impact of people on the planet. You can only change the behavior of companies with consumer behavioral changes. That's correct. And with social media and all the transparency that's in the world today, companies care. Right. And companies can get caught out now like they never could before. Because consumers care. Because consumers care. So it does get back to people, you're right. Walk us through, what are those big key avenues in which we can make swift and drastic change that is great for business, it's great for the world, it's great for the consumer? How do we get out of this and how do we do it where it's sustainable and it's affordable. Yeah. On the one hand, it's very complicated. On the other hand, it's very simple. Yeah. It's like when you ask a six-year-old or, or a four-year-old, you know, it's like the meaning of life, and they tell it to you, and you start weeping. And because... I'm going to try to give you a take on the complicated and a, and a take on the simple, okay? Right. Um, yeah, please. Yeah. On the simple, it's about uh, decarbonizing our, our economy, our world. Right. And what that means is we've got to stop releasing the carbon that's been stored in the earth in fossil fuels quite naturally through the death of life from millions of years ago right. that's morphed over time into coal and oil and gas and then we're re releasing into the atmosphere and we're cooking the earth, okay? Right. Decarbonizing our world so we don't use fossil fuels, stop heating the planet up, would go a long way to saving the oceans. Let me tell you, if we could stop that right away. Right. So that's a big simple, right? Decarbonize. And then the, another big simple is sustainable, and I'm going I'm to introduce a word that's not used very much, rejuvenative. Sustainable and rejuvenative food sourcing. And what I mean by that is you want a farm that not only doesn't use its, more than its fair share of 
water and fertilizers and space and all that, but you want that farm to make the earth better somehow because it existed. Right. And you want to have an aquaculture operation, not only produce healthy, nutritious food, but making the ocean better, cleaning the ocean somehow maybe in the process. There's an example of regenerative, sustainable food production. You might have an aquaculture farm that produces high quality protein, but at the same time it cleans the ocean, right? So it does more than its fair share. So there's two very simple ideas, right? Decarbonize, mm -hmm and sustainable regenerative food production. Because of our trajectory, right, and where we've come from since the Industrial Revolution, species extinction is happening at an alarming rate at this moment in time. And the most conservative estimates that is in 50 years, 36% of all species on Earth will be extinct. And that's the really conservative ones. When you talk to not even more some of the more progressive scientists, even some of the really conservative ones say, look, we can't put this out there, but it's really more about half. It's more like 46 to half. So if almost half of all species on Earth will be extinct within our lifetime, 50 years, it's technically called generation extinction, right? This will be the largest mass extinction since the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. That's right. That is not an acceptable thing for us to wake up with every day and let be. So the idea is if we can, through regenerative food production, mm -hmm. and decarbonizing our economy. We can build greener, stronger economies while providing sustainable, healthy food sources to everyone in not abundance, but as what we need, right? That's the simple part. That's the simple. Okay. Crap. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, why is it complicated? Why is it complicated? <laughs> it's complicated because... It's hard to understand how this Earth-Ocean system, atmospheric system works, although right. we are getting a pretty good handle on it, finally. And I would say, Ian, it's just been in the last 10 or 15 years. Think about that, the whole history of humanity. It's the last 10 or 15 it's years that really... we're beginning to get an idea of how it actually works. Right. I'm beginning to be able to have this kind of a conversation as a scientist with you, is to say, give right. you the big picture. Yeah, I mean, 10 years ago, a scientist of your caliber would never sit with some two-bit television actor. <laughs> You're not a two-bit television actor. Uh, and a technology. I tested you, actually. A lot of celebrities, they, people in your space. Don't use want, that word. They, I'll cut you with this they, megalodon. Oh, is that too. a bad word to use? Okay. <laughs> they want to work in conservation, but you're the real deal. You come through. Yeah, you're super sweet. You know, you do. You come through. You're smart. You, you use your, your world to help me and my community achieve goals. You, you get it. You know, well, you're doing what I wanted to do. There's a certain algebra here. I would have been in marine science. There's a certain algebra here, yeah. So the complicated part is that uh, we, we, now, we now understand it. It's a complicated system. There's a lot of decisions that have to be made by people, by governments, by businesses. We need to consumers. We need to communicate it up. The good news is that the heads of businesses, the politicians, they generally now want to do the right thing if they only knew what it was. I'm going to tell you a really quick anecdote here. Early in my career, I was involved, I worked for the U.S. government, and I was on Capitol Hill making a pitch for a budget allocation as a young scientist. And I got all these, I got all these graphs, and I was trying to explain how the money spent would be used, you know, in this XYZ coordinate thing. And the congressman who was chairing the Appropriations Committee said, stop, stop, stop. And I thought I was in trouble. And he says, you don't get it, do you, Dr. Stone? And I said, no, no, what, what, what is it? He says, he says, just tell us what you want. <laughs> we want to help you. We don't want to learn all that stuff. Just how much money do you need? Right. <laughs> and that's how decision makers and business heads are. They just want to know what the right thing to do is right. today. We generally actually know what the right thing to do is. 
but it, but it is complicated. Once you get, I, I say about a regenerative and a sustainable food production system, it's easy to say that. But then when you get into a big multinational, international, agricultural, agro-business, you know, then they've got to start thinking about the 5,000 farms they, they source from. They've got to think about the, the 10,000 water systems that those farms are fed by. They've got to think about the fertilized companies that they do. They've got to think about the outflow that the Mississippi River has from the farm. I mean, they've right. got to put that all together, and it's doable. But it's hard, it takes time, and you've got to think about it. The Iroquois Nation had a rule that if they were ever going to make a decision right. for the tribe, they made the decision based on what principle? It had to be good for at least seven generations to come after them. They have a constitution that predates the European contact. It was a system of indigenous rules right. about the tribe. And one of the rules was that when the elders made decisions, that they couldn't make a decision that wasn't good for at least seven generations. Right. That means if someone wanted to cut in, come in and cut down all the trees for some short-term phenomenal gain, they wouldn't do it because there wouldn't be any trees for the, for the succeeding generations. So right. this indigenous knowledge, this indigenous social practices is one of an area I'm trying to learn more about because they've evolved over many tens of thousands of years in different communities around the world. And I believe that we can take some of those concepts and, and use them today. Right. Wouldn't it be great if the UN had a rule that you couldn't, make a, you couldn't make a decision that wasn't, to the best of your knowledge, good for seven generations to come? Well, absolutely, and more so not even just the UN. Imagine if it was Walmart or the United States government said, we are not making policy decisions based on, on short-term gains that aren't good for at least seven generations of our country, which would effectively be great for the world as well. The new world order, right, the new future of the world is going to be battery-powered. What does this new world look like? One of the convenient things about fossil fuels, I mean, we talked about the bad things, right? <laughs> the, the convenient things is they're really easy to, to turn on and off in terms of, you know, you burn them, you release energy that's right. been stored for millions of years, and then you convert that energy into whatever you want, whether it's motion in a car or whether it's electricity in the lights. Right. It's been really convenient for us. Renewables, this whole area of solar, uh, wind, water, all these renewable, you know, the, the whole idea of renewables is, is capturing energy, whether it's solar or motion, right. and then using that energy to either propel us around somehow or light our worlds or cook our food, that energy is much harder to turn on and off. It's hard to go out and say, oh, I'd like some more wind today, please. Yeah, right. Because I'm needing to yeah. do something that I, so that requires battery storage. Right. Battery storage requires metal because it's the, it's the atomic properties of certain metals that we use. It's like an elastic, the, these, these atoms with certain metals, it's like, it's like pulling an elastic band, holding it, and then that's a charged battery. Then you release it, and it, and it moves. But you can keep doing it over and over again. That's the great thing about certain metals is that right. they, they're completely reusable when they're in their ability to store electricity. That's where we've got this enormous demand coming is to supply the world with enough metal to, to make wind turbines and, and batteries for cars. I mean, one Tesla battery is like 1,200 pounds, half of it's nickel. So all of those minerals, they come down out of the Andes. These thermal vents push them around. They get put under pressure and currents, bring them together, and they connect like friends going to dinner. Right. Or like a new kid in the, yeah, like, it, yeah. like, mm -hmm. a, like a sixth grader in the hall of their school making friends, and they <laughs> connect. Yeah. 
And they sit on the bottom of the ocean floor in between about 16 to 14,000 feet of water. And they're called polymetallic nodules. That's right. And this is basically the key to our battery future, right? I think so, yes. That's right. You've learned well, Grasshopper. Yeah. Thank you, Sensei. <laughs> you, have that, you have that whole story down. There's also probably a biological component, actually, to how they form. I think I speak for all of us uh, when I say thank you for your tireless efforts over the last 30-plus years of taking ocean science and giving it to us, to the world, and to governments and to companies so that we can build a sustainable future. It's the only way to live. You wrote this incredible book, The Soul of the Sea in the Age of the Algorithm. And why this book affected me uh, in such a profound way and I, why I think it will affect anyone who reads it. There is an ocean renaissance that is happening. People are waking up to the fact that the ocean is the most important organism on the planet. And in the age of the algorithm, the algorithm can actually get us connected enough so that we can understand our part in it. Whether you're just an individual, whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 50 company, or whether you're an astronaut up in space. We all know that the health of the ocean is the only way that we're That's going right. to survive. You've got it. So, my hat is off to you, my, my dear, my big brother, my mentor. I love you, man. Thank you, Ian. And I, I want to say just two quick things to you. First, yeah, tell I me. want to give you a little something. This is a book for you from Christine and I thanking you. It's a book called The Water World. It's an antique book. It was written in the 1880s. Oh, wow. And I love this book because basically everything we knew about the ocean at that time, and it's richly illustrated with plates from that era. And Thanks, very brother. Very well written. Thanks, Christine. It's a good read, okay? Yeah, And it's great. just a little memento of thanking you for all you've done here. And the second thing I want to do is I want to invite you on a journey with me. We're going to go out and explore the oceans pole to pole. And we're going to find those places that are most important to optimizing the ocean, to helping the ocean function to its best, such that you, your children, your grandchildren, and all the way down are going to look back and say that this generation was the greatest generation because we made the tough choices and we provided an earth, ocean, atmospheric, human ecosystem that, that survives. And pole did, to pole. Pole to pole is the idea. And it's finding, journeying, exploring, and optimizing and protecting those special places all around the globe. So let's go. Let's go. All right. I love you, brother. Oh, man, thank you. Oh, oh, oh you're my big brother, dude. You're my little baby brother. I am. Thank you for guiding me. Yeah, you're much me better looking than me, though. No, 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 no. Thank you, brother. No, thank you. Thank you.